The Holy Gospel according to John, the eighth chapter. So Jesus said to those who believed in him, If you obey my teaching, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are the descendants of Abraham, they answered, and we have never been anybody's slaves. What do you mean then by saying you will be free? Jesus said to them, I am telling you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. Slave does not belong to a family permanently, but a son belongs there forever. If the son sets you free, then you will be really free. The gospel of the Lord. I invite the congregation to be seated. So one of the things that, that we face, I think, in the church is that uh, we, we celebrate holidays and people don't really understand what they are anymore because our, our culture has kind of moved on from revolving around the church calendar as a frame of reference, other than the fact that people really enjoy Christmas which is the time when everyone gathers because they like that Jesus brings them presents, right? Isn't that what happens, right? Or, or Easter, which is the time when the Easter bunny was raised from the dead for our, isn't that the way that works? And, you know, today we celebrate, the, the, we commemorate the Reformation, which is when we celebrate and wonder whether Martin Luther is going to see his shadow and give us four more weeks of Pentecost, right? Well... Maybe, maybe it's a little mixed up. But it, it does beg the question, though, you know, why is it that on this day, and Sergey, are you close to the, um, to the computer? Could you slide forward one slide, please? On this day, we commemorate Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg in 1517. And we're, we'll see a picture, maybe in a minute, of, uh, of Martin Luther looking a little dour. And if not, that's okay too. There he is. He looks, maybe he looks a little more smug than he does dour. But you know, it, it goes to show, you know, being a German, he was pretty serious. And when we talk about 95 theses, you know, what we're really talking about is arguments. We're talking about the arguments that Martin Luther had with the Catholic Church. They were arguments about how they understand salvation arguments of how they understand what forgiveness is, arguments of how Martin Luther saw differently the way that the Catholic Church was talking about how power works in the church versus how he thought power should work in the church. And, you know, we still have these arguments to, to, to this day. Martin Luther is noteworthy not because he was the first one to try to reform the church, he was noteworthy in part because he was the first one in that era to survive trying to reform the church. And it just so happens that one consistent piece throughout history, which is when rich people want to avoid paying taxes, they find somebody to be the, the you know, bulwark of their movement so that they can get out of paying taxes. In this case, the rich people in Germany were trying to get out of paying taxes to the church. And so this upstart monk, Martin Luther, Let's remember something about the Catholic Church both then and now is that the, when we say the Roman Catholic Church, even though there is one pope and one office in Rome in the Vatican where, they, where their offices are, you know, the, the Catholic Church is not a single monolithic entity. The Catholic Church has within it almost what denominations look like in the Lutheran Church and in the Protestant world. In the same way, there's not one type of Lutheran. You know, you have Augustinians and Franciscans and Dominicans and, you know, all kinds of other things. And there are factions within the Catholic Church that are 
very progressive and liberal, and there are factions within the church that are very progressive and conservative and regressive versions of both of those. And so there's great diversity within the Catholic Church, which might lead you to wonder, well, if there's a lot of places that Martin Luther might have been able to fit in, how did he run so afoul of the Pope that he got in enough trouble that he actually kicked him out? And it's because being a good first Lutheran, he was very stubborn and didn't know how to keep his mouth closed. And so we got the Reformation because Martin Luther was so convicted that he just not, he could not stay quiet. And so Martin Luther did what in the Middle, middle Ages and the dawning of the modern age and the Enlightenment, which is about the time when he existed, you know, he did what we might call a tweet storm nowadays. You know, he, he was the one who was posting tweet after tweet after tweet. Or if tweeting isn't your thing, Facebook post after, fa or maybe you're a MySpace people, I don't know. But whatever he did, he posted angry things all over the place in the forums of his day and was such an agitator that finally he had to go. And, you know, as, I'm, as I was thinking about this this week, we, we see in Martin Luther something that's really interesting to me is that we lift him up so many times kind of outside of the context of his own life. And, and especially in, in clergy circles and pastor circles, we talk an awful lot about the things that he wrote and the things that he said and the things that he did. And the bulk of what we talk about are all the good things that we like. I don't know if any of y'all experienced this when you were growing up in history classes or studying American history, but I remember really clearly one of my history teachers in, middle, in elementary school saying something along the lines of, the Constitution was written by the founders of our country in their infinite wisdom. Isn't that just a weird thing to say about human beings? But, you know, I think it's a really interesting commentary on what the difference of our understanding was of the framers of our nation's, you know, principles and culture and laws and the way we understand what it means to be an American that not only lifts them up as people who were deep thinkers and scholarly thinkers and also people with deep personal interests, which they were, but we put them on a pedestal. We, we put them in a place where they're enshrined outside the context of their lives. And we do that to the point that when people try to point out the things that they also did, in addition to founding our nation, it makes us uncomfortable because we're not used to speaking things that indicated that they might not be perfect whether we would say it that way or not. You know, the, the conversation about how we deal with the fact that a constitution that, that declared freedom as its founding principle also made it possible to own slaves, right? And when we talk about that, we get mighty uncomfortable because it reveals something about us we don't like to look at. You know, that's one of the things we face when we talk about Martin Luther too. Martin Luther is also a human being. And if you read Luther's works, especially as he got older, you'll see the things that he wrote about the Jewish people. And you'll see that cultural prejudice that he adopted that later, 500 years almost later, 400 years later, would evolve into the Nazi Germany that brought about World War II. You know, we see how the beliefs in a culture persist over time and that Martin Luther didn't exist in a vacuum where Martin Luther, in his infinite wisdom, was right about everything. Martin Luther was a human being. And, and remembering that context is important too. You know, and I think that's how this connects so clearly for me to the gospel today, where Jesus talks about the truth. 
Later in John, Pontius Pilate will ask, what is truth? As he washes his hands of everything that he's done. And I wonder if maybe we live in a time where that question is more pertinent and more challenging and more relevant than any other time in my life. What is truth? As we as a nation struggle with that, as we as the church struggles with, with what it means to be the church in these times, as, as we as individuals struggle with the truth of what it means to be family and friends and the rest of it, you know, we, we're at a time where I think this idea of truth is both maybe more important than we've seen in a long time and sometimes more elusive because the people in whom we put our trust, sometimes we wonder whether they have any connection to it. You know, and, and that's not political partisan. I, I don't care about party. That's not the comment I'm making. It's, it's just about living in a culture where we experience that everything around us is changing so quickly it's hard to get our bearings. You know, you, you steer a ship and you rely on the compass and you rely on the steering wheel to get you there and the wind to guide you. Or if you're like in my house where we've seen Moana about 17 million times, you see Moana and Maui guiding with their hands, you know, against the stars. But what happens when it's cloudy? And what happens when you're in a place where maybe the magnetic north, and I don't know whether this place exists, I'm just using this as an illustration. This indicates no knowledge whatsoever. But you're in a place where maybe the magnetic north isn't pulling quite so strongly on your compass as it might. And you wonder what the real direction is. What happens when our heroes become people? And as I, as I think about this question and struggle with it, you know, I also think about the, the people that we talk about in the Bible. You know, one of the questions that one of our confirmation students had this morning as they were filling out the first half of the, of the congregational survey, which I hope all of you are filling out, is uh, they were asking, well, what does it mean that we're people who believe, or what does it mean when it asks the question, do you believe in a literal, inerrant scripture that's completely, absolutely, word for word true in terms of its historical and, and narrative context? You know, basically it's saying, is the Bible absolutely true all the time? Or is the Bible a place from which we understand our faith as a norm and guide for our life together? Number two is more Lutheran. And because the Bible is our norm and guide, it's not necessarily the dictate of our historical, you know, understanding of everything that ever happened in the world. But, you know, we do. We think of those people like Moses, who, who is leading the people out of, out of exile or, or out of slavery through the wilderness, Right. And Moses is this great figure. Moses is the one through whom God worked and his staff became a snake and turned back in. And Moses was the one who professed to Pharaoh that there were going to be plagues and there were plagues. And Moses is the one who lifted his staff as, the, as God's people went through the, the Red Sea. And Moses was the one who proclaimed the word of God to them of release and hope. And yet Moses was a human being who had short shortcomings as well and ultimately didn't see the promised land because like any pastor sometimes it goes to your head and he had claimed that the miracles that he had performed weren't the miracles of God but they were his own and and we see sometimes that that our idols are people and it's important too to remember the context of why it is that the people needed things like laws that was the other thing that we talked about in, in confirmation this morning you know, as, as we were talking about the Ten Commandments 
and that I think also becomes really important in our scriptures today because Jeremiah talks about a time when people will no longer need to tell each other, know the Lord, because the Lord will be poured into our hearts and we will all know the Lord because God will be so present with us. There's, there's no need to wonder whether people understand and know and, and value the things that God values and wants for us to, to experience because that experience will be a common human understanding. What an amazing day. There's also that worry. When we hear the word new covenant, what happens to the old covenant? You know, what happens to the ones before? Is God a God of short-term promises and deals who breaks God's word as soon as it becomes convenient to do so, where God makes new covenants and leaves the other people behind? Or is God different than that? Is, is God God who doesn't leave people behind but makes new covenants that build on the covenants that came before? When God makes a promise, God keeps that promise. And so when we, when we think about, you know, what does it mean to be people, and we, and we take our faith out of the context of this idol that we have that, that is surrounded by the word should, right? There's all kinds of things that we, when we think about our faith, and we think about our worship, and we think about our congregation, and we think about, you know, how we live all that, that are, are enshrined in the word should. But what's, what's core to that? And I... I think part of what helps us to see the core is understanding why God bothers to tell us to do things at all and understanding our relationship. We remember that in the beginning when God created and God created the man, the thing that God said about the man was it's not good for him to be alone. It says something about relationship, recognizing that our relationship with God is one that's unequal and that one of the things that we need is a relationship with someone who can be equal to us, to lift us up and be our partner in life. And so God gave us the gift of relationship. And then once we had relationship, God instituted the first rule, only one, don't eat the fruit. How'd we do with that? Not so good, right? And so we learned something that was important. One, every relationship needs boundaries in order to be good. And two, we are terrible at living into those boundaries. And so then, you know, later on, God, God cuts a new covenant and gives us 10 rules, right? And the reason we say cut a covenant is back in Bible times. This is your gross trivia for the day. They, they would cut an ox or other animal in half lengthwise and without power tools. This was a grisly task. And then they would walk between the two halves of the animals and that would signify in the blood of that covenant that this was something that was important to both sides and they were joined together and never the twain shall part, right? And so when we talk about Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that's sacrifice for the sake of our sins that we're talking about. And so God cuts a new covenant with the people who are being led out of slavery. And those are the Ten Commandments, right? And as we learned in, in confirmation this morning, the commandments aren't just because God likes making rules and telling us what not to do, but that first commandment is God reminding us why these rules would exist at all to begin with, which is, I'm the one who's led you out of Egypt. I'm the one who's led you out of slavery. I am the one you are following by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night so that you might begin to find your home and your place again and understand yourselves as free people rather than enslaved people. 
think I'm the one who, when you said you were hungry for bread, provided you with manna. I am the one who, when you said you were hungry for meat, provided you with pheasants. I am the one who, when you said you were thirsty, provided you with water from a rock. So you have no other gods before me, not because I need you, but because I love you. And I show that love time and time again. The commandments are not in the context of some, not, of some need God has for us to just obey. The commandments are in the context of a people who need so desperately to know what is truth and what do we value and how do we live. And once again, we demonstrated that we're no good at this because while God was giving Moses the commandments, the people were at the base of the mountain melting down their jewelry building an idol to Baal, who was a fertility god, because nothing says we've been delivered from slavery like partying with a fertility god. And we see something that's really key here, which is that when, when Moses comes down from the mountain and sees what's happening, God says to Moses, look at what your people are doing. And, and God's plan is to, to wipe them out and start over again. We've seen this theme in the Old Testament before. But Moses says something that's really important. And I don't know that Moses is, and I don't know that God is saying this as a test for Moses or whether God is saying this because of the true anger and hurt at these people who God loves and is delivering from slavery already turning away. But Moses says, not my people, they're your people. Remember the covenant. Remember what your promise was. And regardless of whether this was a test or not, the language of the Old Testament says something really similar to God repented. God changed God's mind. God moved from planning one thing into planning something else. And so when we wonder what is truth, the truth is that the law was given to us to understand relationship, to understand what it means to live together, to understand what it means to love together, to understand what it means to not only be the church, but just be people. And as we commemorate the reformation of the church, which isn't just the thing that happened in 1517, but it's the ongoing effort to continually seek out what God is calling us to do and who God is calling us to be, we engage in that reformation by remembering what God does. Even God has the capacity to change God's mind from time to time and stop doing that old thing and start doing that new thing. Maybe that's part of the nature of God that doesn't change. Maybe not. I don't know. That's above my pay grade. But it certainly is something for us to remember in a time where we're being pulled in so many different directions, all of them saying, I am the right one. So as we, we go out from this place and we you know, live our lives and we try to, to wrestle with who it is God is calling us to be, in the same way we're wrestling with who, does, who is God calling this congregation to be, you know, what are the ways that you and your life are experiencing a call to stop doing something and start doing something new? Where is it that you, you build an idol to those things that you like doing and would rather do that needs to be torn down? Where are the places that, that you need for, for that presence of God to give you the strength and the courage and the hope 
to turn aside and do something new. That is what we are called to do. That's what it means to always be reforming. It means that through the waters of baptism, God is always reforming and reshaping our hearts so that in the place where fear and sin lived, new life might begin. Amen.